Hey there, and welcome back to the Win Rob Show. It is great to be with you guys. My name is Robert, Director of Communications for Ministry to State. And here with me, as always, my very dear friend, Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry to State. Will, what's going on, dude? Man, you know, I'm still riding that high. I have a delicious breakfast at Pete's <laughs> Diner this morning. That's a good place. Now, That's a good DC spot. Great DC spot. Wonderful people delicious food, great location. I mean, all the things that you really look for in a diner. Yeah. The, uh, the old style, like classic breakfast diner place seems to have gone by the wayside, but it's always good to like find those little gems. They're just, they're just special. You know, there's, there's a couple here. There's a Jimmy T's also that's on like East cap. Yeah, and like then, an know, old row home almost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people love that place, and it's somewhat contentious to say it, but it just it doesn't do it for me. <laughs> I don't want to. I, I, going on the record with that is probably not the right way to go about this. This is probably something that I think <laughs> it's been that grave because people will, people will, uh, you know, come to blows over that over their loyalty to Jimmy T's. Um, it's just not. It's just not for me. I'm more of a Pete's guy. But that's fine. Uh, I, I I do think though, to your point about diners, the Silver Diner, mm-hmm. um, there's you know it's a chain and there's multiple locations. But that's kind of a, a new take, fresh take on an old concept. That's actually one of my wife's favorite places. Uh, during during the pregnancy, we went we went and had quite a few meals at at Silver Diner because that was that was her craving most of the time. She always wanted to get a chocolate malt. Uh, so very few which places pregnant- you can go find those. So you, that's where which pregnancy. Go. The second one, the second one. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, hold on. Before you go, I, I have another. Do you put Ted's Bulletin into the category of of diners? Ooh, that's a good question. When you walk right in, I guess the, the whole ambience of it is very diner-esque. Right. Um, to be completely honest of? with you, you, you admitted something uh, that you were afraid to admit oh. on the podcast. Now I'm afraid to admit something. Oh, no. I've never actually eaten at ted's bulletin except to get uh i dare i admit i once had a boozy shake there one time but other than that i have not actually sat and ate at at ted's bulletin you have never sat in a booth at ted's bulletin i have sat at the little bar at the front and gotten my little boozy milkshake but that's it have you ever ordered a pop tart from them again i am very ashamed to admit that i have not had a homemade pop tart from ted's bulletin either i know I know. Have you ever, or I just want to keep asking these questions to keep you having to admit over and over again. I don't want to keep admitting to, D, to DC places I've never been. So we have to be really careful here. Goodness gracious. Yeah. This is uh this is fairly serious. I think I know fairly serious. Um, what's what is uh, also very serious. And I took it very seriously today. I did my patriotic duty and I went out and voted today in the state of Virginia. Good for so you. I got my sticker and uh, took the whole family. We had a family event to the polling station. Um, and so training up my, my boys and what the democratic process looks like. That was, what'd you vote for? I'm not going to admit that on, <laughs> on, on air. Um, no, I, I, uh, I actually resent uh, mail-in vote voting and I, I'll, I'll explain why I actually think it's really good to go to, to polling stations and have to vote in person because you interact with your neighbors and you meet very, very interesting people at polling stations. Um, so I would, I would recommend go actually out, go out and vote in person if you're going to, uh, and go meet the people that are, that are working there and are, uh, 
in line to vote. It's very interesting. It's like, I remember when I was a kid looking around, 4th of July in Texas is a huge thing. And not only going to fireworks shows, but but putting on your own firework displays. Oh yeah. And so you go to these, as a kid, normally they're just like these little kind of trailers that are set up on the side of the road that you can buy stuff. But then like the firework warehouses show oh, up. Oh yeah. And these are like huge air conditioned fireworks storehouses that you can go into like joseph the second in charge of egypt was in charge of setting this <laughs> stuff up to provide enough goods for the people to survive a, a devastation um I remember looking around i was in high school I was like man this is a diverse group of people i mean you get everyone... everybody loves fireworks man yes it's from the country club to the trailer park like like everyone who was in that, in our County of different, were there, they're all milling about, about to celebrate America. Yeah. It's funny. You know, there are very few places today that don't um, like segregate socioeconomically. So like you could, uh, like you can uh, segregate for food where you can go to like, you know, fast casual instead of like, you know, Burger King or McDonald's, you know, different different like level chain grocery stores talk target versus walmart but if you want to buy fireworks there's only one place you can go so you got to everyone goes to that place if you want to vote there's only one place you can go everyone's got it to show up there so it is kind of a really fun event and i enjoyed it and uh usually people don't talk about voting that way but that's fine but what we wanted to talk about today it's kind of i guess somewhat related um we wanted to take some time uh on this episode uh and talk about uh, i think the the, the buzz term is cultural engagement, you know, something Christians are thinking about constantly in terms of how do we engage the culture? And I mean, obviously, Will, I mean, you've noticed this as well. I, I've definitely noticed it. It seems that over the past, you know, few years, um, there seems to be a lot of uh, uh, anxiety or anxiousness, nervousness um, about this question, you know, a lot of differing opinions you know, Roger wrote his book, The Benedict Option, as sort of a, a, a guide for cultural engagement for Christians. And since then, there's been no shortage of, of alternative options put up. You'll see, you know, people uh, make up their own uh, based on certain characters or certain uh, historical figures that, you know, we think we should embody them as, as, as an approach to cultural engagement. Um, and so I guess to kind of kick off this conversation, I just wanted to start with you. What has been your perception of this debate? What Where have you uh, seen things uh, debated and what's been sort of your uh, reaction to those, those conversations. And you're making me think about my kind of history and experience growing up. Okay. Uh, Cause I grew up in a, the pre-millennial dispensationalist world. So, so for uh, somebody who doesn't know, cause we're now that that's, a, that's an eschatological term. And eschatology can be very blurry for a lot of people. It's the kind of the one area of theology. I feel like a lot of people like kind of have a sense of what they believe, but they don't know the terms and heard how to describe it. So what describe just really briefly premillennial dispensationalism. Yeah. So premillennial dispense briefly describe premillennial <laughs> dispensationalism. Let me, let me just put it like this. I think that uh, for, for the purposes of our conversation regarding cultural engagement, it has more to do with the concept of like the world going to hell in a handbasket, that the world is going from bad to worse and that the world, the state of affairs are going to continue to be worse and worse and worse until Christ comes back and sets up his millennial reign 
here on earth. Inevitably, they have to get worse is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, With that, though, comes like a big contra. So you have the church against the world. So you have um, Christians fighting against uh, uh, secular culture or secularism or um, but but I will say for the purposes of pre premillennial dispensationalism of like the Hal Lindsey type, which Hal Lindsey is a pastor, preacher, political pundit down in um, San Antonio who wrote The Late Great Planet Earth, which may be the best-selling book in the history of America um, <laughs> that is full of all these blood moon prophecies about the end of the world coming, um, things going, America going more and more down this Pat, but I will say for those in that camp, uh, and, and my family wasn't in the Hal Lindsey camp. I wouldn't put us that close, but it was more in like closer to like the left behind. Um, the world is getting worse and worse. Um, the We are to be salt and light to, to witness the world, to love our neighbors, to care for people. But um, there is a clear break between the two, um, between the wickedness in the world and the, the light of the church. And I think whenever, after college, coming in contact with people like N.T. Wright and his book, Surprised by Hope was really big, reading about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his engagement, um, fighting uh, Nazism and fighting for the church, um, reading socio-historical work by people like Rodney Stark and his view of church history that really, um, you know, he, for the first time, from like a public intellectual, someone saying in the Western world, the church has been the greatest source of good uh, and salt and light than any other uh, uh, institution or group around. So then my thinking started shifting a little bit, reading like cultural engagement books like To Change the World by James Davidson Hunter, Culture Making by Andy Crouch. and thinking more like, okay, we need to be in the culture. We need to be, re- and then I think so much of this is evolving based on the state of affairs out in the world, uh, reading the Benedict option, which we did a review of has caused me to kind of think like, like, what does it look like for the church to be faithful in her calling in the world? Uh, if there is this clear break between, um, b- b- between the church and the world. And then also like, this recent debate, which we'll get to with between David French, basically, and Carl Truman, you know, uh, yeah, they're just a lot of different, different approaches. But in terms of my, my thoughts on cultural engagement, I think so much of it, um, I'm not a transformationalist. I'm not a two kingdoms guy. Most of it has to do with like, a, maybe one day I'll be firmly in one of those camps. I don't know. But for now, I think it is hard to universalize a, a program like that or a belief like that um, when, when cultural and political situations vary so widely around the world. That is a lot of rambling, I think, and enough for now. But what about you? <laughs> That's, well, I think you, you just brought up an interesting point that, that I tend to reach to when I consider this question, which is that uh, there's so many... Uh, distinctions that have to be made in terms of defining quote unquote culture. So like 
the culture of the church in America is vastly different than the culture of the church in North Africa and vastly different than from the church church's culture in, you know, Scandinavia and then China, like these, these places are just very different. And so what I, what I tend to, um, uh, think about when I think about cultural engagement is I kind of want to get away from ideological, uh, programs where sort of like, this is like the universal stance that the church must take. Um, and so you're kind of, you're sort of like stuck into these ridges or, or ruts where my, my, I tend to think that, uh, uh, the, the vast, um, evidence of scripture and church history has been more of a prudential discernment of the surrounding circumstances and then acting as, as closely to Christian ethical behaviors as one can in those, those circumstances. Uh, the, the culture of, uh, ancient Rome uh, is a lot different uh, than the culture in America was in, say, the Cold War, and is even vastly different than it is today. And so y- you can't really say, well, the church always needs to be doing this, because that seems to disregard a major factor, which is, well, what's what's going on, maybe for lack of a better way of saying it, out there. Um, and so what I actually think that this is the source of a lot of the anxiety going on in, quote unquote, evangelicalism right now um and I, you know i'm that's not an uh, original point that you can read pieces that are, are talking about this and so a uh, one piece that that made a lot of noise over the last weekend or week and a half or so uh was carl truman's uh piece in first things about evangelical uh the evangelical elite um and that's been a term that's sort of been growing and and people have been debating and I actually think that the the quote unquote you know rift between evangelical elites and the the people in the pews, if you will, um, that debate is actually ill served because it, it doesn't point to the actual issue what's going on. The, the controversy uh, between someone like you mentioned, like David French and Carl Truman, actually has nothing to do, I don't think, with credentialism or you know socioeconomic status. For for on all on all indicators, both are quote unquote elites, what, what differentiates them is the way that they perceive the quote unquote threat from the outside culture. Um, and I think that really is where the rift is, where people are arguing, you know, is this, are we, are we entering into, is this the beginning of a new kind of public square that Christians are going to have to adapt to, or, um, it has nothing really changed uh, and we continue to operate as we have been doing for you know X amount of years. I think that's really where where we are. And one's assessment of what's going on in the culture in terms of its its perception of Christianity is really what's going to um, decide where you fall on in in one of these two camps. So there's a piece we were talking about off air that you had said was getting some traction that you said had kind of divided the cultural engagement question into several different eras. What, what was that? Yeah. I'm pulling it up right now. Okay. Cause you, cause it had made an interesting point. I don't know if I agree with it. I don't know if I think that I follow. Um, America has such an interesting history of church, parachurch, like individuals starting movements to 
um, be redemptive in, in culture, which I think all Christians are called to. They are called to play a role of, we'll just say being salt and light to use a biblical term, wherever they are. It, uh, you have a, a, a lot of this exhibited in the abolition. Um, you had things really change though, after the civil war in the early 20th century um, with the modernist fundamentalist controversy. And it seems that, which is an adoption of the modernists of a more liberal theology that um, really watered down Christianity to being a faith that was pretty indiscernible from any other faith out there uh, really questioned all the central tenets. And then you have the fundamentalists who held to the fundamentals, and then you get them kind of being pushed in a way um, to like a certain, some of you get fundamentalists morphing in a lot of ways, the term being identifying people who are more anti-intellectual, anti-science, um, anti learning, anti-art, I think would be another one. Um, but anyways, that, that's thing is, I guess that to say that from the be- 20th century with that big controversy in the church, um, you get two different strands that will, that will largely um, view cultural engagement differently. But then even within, you know, David French is certainly not a modernist. Um, he is more on the cultural engagement of like the Kuyperian transformationalist side than someone like Rod Dreher, who's more on the two kingdoms side of things. Um, but they're both firmly Orthodox. I mean, they're both firmly Orthodox Christian brothers. So, mm-hmm. but anyways, did you find the piece? Yeah. Yeah. So this is the, this is the paradigm or the, the framework that he sets up. And like you said, th- th- this is one perspective. This is, this is absolutely somebody that's coming from a more drear esque position where, you know, things are getting really bad um, cult, uh, Christians need to recognize that we are sort of in a different era, but these are the, these are the three, um, categories he has. So, uh, he breaks it down into positive, neutral, and negative world. And so pre-1994 was what he would call positive world. Christianity was viewed positively by society and Christian morality was still normative. Um, and then between 1994 and 2014, I believe 2014, the marker is, is that Obergefell or is that right before Obergefell? I guess you no, could I say. Think, well, 2015, I believe. Yeah. I think it was February or March of 2015. So 2014, kind of leading up into that major decision, um, you have Maybe neutral world, that. which is Christianity is seen as a socially neutral, neutral attribute. It no longer had dominant status in society, but to be seen as a religious person was not a knock either. And I think I, I resonate with that description as somebody who grew up in that era. That sort of those are formative years for me, 94 to uh, uh, 2014. Like, I think most people that I knew lived Christianity in such a way where, you know, that's what we do on Sundays. Um, that's part of our lives. We pray, you know, if you come over to our house for dinner, we're going to pray and say grace. But like, you know, outside of that, um, we go about our business. We kind of are just, you know, good citizens. Don't worry about uh, our Christianity really coming to bear too much in some of the ways that we talk about it today. And then he describes this new new era we live in called negative world. And he, he describes this as 2014 on. And in this world, being a Christian is now a social negative, uh, especially in high status positions. Christianity is in many ways seen as undermining the social good. And I think you would have to probably base that 
almost exclusively in things like uh, the Orthodox Church's uh, stance on LGBTQ issues, marriage, um, gender norms, things like that. Um, and I, 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 that's kind of the way that he breaks it down. So I guess we'll initially, what, what's, what's your, what's your initial reaction to something like that? Is that, is that a fair assessment of, of the eras? Is that, could you, could you reasonably see a place where we are in something like a negative world space? I think it depends on what sector is speaking mm-hmm. to it. I just don't think it's fair to say that as a whole, Christianity is, is viewed as a negative. I mean, we do ministry on Capitol Hill and there are, there are offices where, or let's say agendas where being a Christian would be a negative, an Orthodox Christian, but there are a ton where being an Orthodox Christian is a net positive. And so I just think about being up here in DC, there's enough cases where that's not the total experience of everybody, that there are still areas where where Christianity is looked favorably upon in Washington, DC. Now, I think you can certainly find places where it's not. And I think a lot of those voices are very loud up here. But I, I, I'm just thinking about the con, I, I, I guess it just depends on where one is. And yeah. I think that probably in a place like DC on the whole, uh, I would say holding to Orthodox Christian beliefs is probably um, more of a negative than a positive up here. But I'm just thinking particularly on the Hill. I mean, it's, it's not that cut and dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, in, in, on the one hand, I can see that, that case being made if you're, if we're going to apply it strictly to things like related to the LGBTQ issues. Um, I, I think you could reasonably suspect that a, you know, or I guess maybe you should point to things like uh, the Colorado uh, Baker case, um, things like that, you know, issues where churches or Christians in certain positions want to excuse themselves from uh, same-sex marriages or um, uh, gender transitions are going to be looked. I, I can see that element of, or sort of looking as like, okay, you guys are you guys are not in line with the quote-unquote common good that we're trying to promote right now, um, and so you're you're hostile to that. I think though, in most places, Christianity. I don't I don't have the same experience in terms of it being a, a, a net positive, but I do think my experience has been that it's just seen as weird. It's just strange. And th- this is in things like also sort of related, but, you know, most of the conversations I've had with people where I've shared the gospel uh, in, in a meaningful sense has usually like precipitated from the fact that they thought it was really weird that I was so young and married and they wanted to know why that was. Um, I remember one time I got into an Uber and uh, uh, the guy asked me, I would said something like, yeah, I was really tired. My son like, kept me up all night or something like that. And he was like, you cannot be old enough to have a kid. And I said, no, I, I, I have, he's like, and I said, yeah, my wife and I, he's like, and you're married. And I was like, yeah. And he, he was very genuinely curious. Like, why did you do that? Why did you decide to get married? And his whole point basically when he was arguing was like, no, between, you know, college and when you get married in your mid thirties, like that's when you're supposed to like, kind of go sow your wild oats and have fun. And I basically was like saying like, I never wanted to do that. And that, you know, actually, I don't think that that's really good. And, you know, I think like, I think that because of what I believe about, you know, God and, and humans and what the Bible says. And, and so it was this really interesting conversation. 
it wasn't hostile. Like he didn't think my viewpoints were hostile. I don't think he would ever have said that, but he definitely would have said they're very strange. It's really weird that you guys do that. Um, and I don't know really what to make of that. Could that, could that strange strangeness one day be viewed as hostile? I mean, the history of, of humankind has been to say, well, what's, what's not norm, you know, quote unquote, not normal is a threat. Um, you know, that, that I guess that could morph and evolve into that. I think where I, where I tend to maybe get off the, the bus with some of the more hardliners, especially on maybe the right, that not, not morally right, but left, right, the right side of this issue is I just don't see the inevitability, if that makes sense. And that seems to reflect a lot of what you're talking about in terms of eschatology. It seems sort of connected in some way. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you recently landed on the amillennial position. And so I think it makes total sense that you would not hold to that unavoidability, which kids pay attention to your eschatological views. They will have an effect on your day-to-day thinking. Uh, I, so there are, there, you know, there's a question of the church gate engaging the world out there and what different approaches and how will non-believers or institutions or businesses respond to our engagement. That's one thing. I I think the concern for me is the um, hostility that is developing between Christians and, hey, you hold to a transformationalist view. I hold to a two kingdoms view. How dare you? You're ruining the church. The other side is you're, you're, you're separating yourself and you're not you're not actually engaging the world. You're not being a light and you're not witnessing. And I think what, you know, what discourages me is that if we're honest, if we look around, there's a lot of really, really smart, honest, faithful people on both sides of this. And the frustration comes when there is this demand that everybody follow the same program. Like there's this really deep frustration. I think that and divide that happens when one side or the other starts saying, I can't believe you're doing this. Um, you have to do exactly what I think is the right way to do this. And, you know, that's just, um, I think that's really unhealthy. And I think that God is probably going to, as we said earlier on, God is going to call different people to engage these issues differently based on where they are. Um, and we, we need to allow a little more room for, for both of them, we can hold to our conviction and say, this is, I think it's right. But, you know, if we're not going to break fellowship with someone over their view of baptism or the Lord's supper, why are we going to break fellowship with them over their view on cultural engagement, which is in my opinion, much less clear yeah. in scripture. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Like uh, when I was writing my, I recently wrote an eschatology paper. That's why it's kind of been on my, in, in the top of my mind. And uh, if, if you go and look, the PCA does not have a uh, a definitive statement about you must be this thing. We we based on what I can tell, there's a certain range of viewpoints that are acceptable. Obviously, we don't accept any sort of dispensationalist view of the eschatology, but you you can basically sort of slide in between pre mill, a mill, and, and post mill, um, and be ordainable in the PCA. And it seems to me like what you're saying. How much of that has an effect on? the way we're going to perceive and engage culture. I mean, if we're not going to make a definitive statement on those things, then it seems really kind of silly and foolish to then make a definitive statement 
about how then you must do ministry um, on all these sort of peripheral matters. Like, obviously, you can't start a PCA church and say, well, the reason people don't come to church is because we don't proclaim the, it's because we proclaim the gospel. So therefore, we're going to stop proclaiming the gospel and do church. Obviously, you can't do something like that. But the question of, um, you know, you know, the quote unquote for the city movements and, and uh, you know, other similar you know, quote unquote programs that churches implement in order to engage with their the culture that they're placed in seems to me to be quite silly to sort of draw hard lines on some of those things, um, especially if that's not necessarily your context. It seems to me to be more fruitful to hear, you know, if there's two urban pastors debating, you know, what's the proper ministry to, the, to urban areas, that would be more interesting to me than say uh, a pastor in Chicago, New York city, LA coming into a place, you know, I live out in sort of in the mix between the suburbs and the rural areas of Virginia, you know, coming into our church and being like, well, you need to have this, you know, this ministry strategy, blah, blah. I mean, it, it's not the same place and it's not the same kind of people. And, um, and that's okay. And it, it better to, um, allow the pastors who have been equipped and called by the Holy spirit, uh, to, uh, operate within our confession under the guidance and leader, you know, and leadership of the presbytery and the session to make the best ministry decisions uh, that they see fit. That seems to me to be very in line with like what Paul is instructing, you know, the epistles in like Timothy and Titus, right? Like, you know, your situations are different. You're, I'm calling you to different places and those places are going to be different. You know, I bet Titus had a probably a, a more ill, you know, favoring view of his surrounding culture going to, you know, to pastor to the Cretans. Paul has some pretty strong words about, you know, what the Cretans are like. Um, but that didn't stop from Paul from saying, go minister there, but just keep in mind, like, this is your situation and you're going to have to adapt and figure out ways to proclaim the gospel there. Yeah. Uh, going back to the bind the conscience teaching of if, if it is explicitly stated in scripture or is a good and necessary inference from, and, uh, these are good inferences. They just may not be necessary ones that have to be held. And so, um, in that case, it's, it would be wrong to force someone to hold to a different view. I, I think really, I, I just want for, um, and look, I can get concerned about stuff and I can get worked up and um, concerned, but I, I, I really hope that Christians can look around at their brothers and sisters and say, you go get them, you know, uh, you go for it. And if they have a different approach, just believing that they um, mean well and, and that, you know, look, if people, as long as people aren't compromising on the faith, as long as people aren't hiding certain truths that are essential, as long as people aren't um, name calling and telling people they're going to burn and, you know, as long as people aren't doing those kind of things, like let's leave room and let's, let's encourage and foster one another on and, you know, I think pastors in local church are going to make decisions about how they're going to have their their ministries work in the city and what philosophy they're going to take. Sure, um, and those are probably going to fall towards one side or the other. Inevitably, I think they just they have to as humans. We have to go somewhere. But I, I just hope that this that we're more positive what we're for instead of this whole. I can't believe this person said this about that person, or or vice versa. Just. Um, there's enough of that in the world already. Yeah. I mean, my, my personal experience with this is like, do, I, honestly, I, I tend to fall on the, the side 
or I, maybe at the right word to say, I empathize more, sympathize more with the side that says, you know, we are entering a new era. I probably would, would subscribe closer to something like the, the negative world uh, approach that that author laid out. I do think things are, you know, uh, probably, you know, looking like the church is going to be facing more um, persecution to some degree. I do think that that's coming, but I'm or glad for my brothers um, who disagree um, and uh, encourage me in a more hopeful or positive uh, uh, vision. It's really easy for me to get down in the dumps. And I would hope that the other side would say the same thing. That's what I, I, I wanted to end by reading um, a passage from Second Timothy, because I think it's I think it's appropriate and I think it kind of connects to what we've been saying. Um, and, you know, this one thing that always strikes me now that I've I, I've started reading Second Timothy in light of this, you know, these are these are the words of I believe as D.A. Carson says, uh, a man standing in the shadow of the scaffold, um, uh, somebody who knows he's he's going to die for the faith. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you, Timothy, constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That's the, that's the Pauline option. I'm going to go ahead and call it. And uh, that's the one I'll, I'll side on. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Will anything else, any other last thoughts, comments about cultural engagement? Just go out and do it, huh? Well, go out and do it. And, and, and I'm sure think things are going to get harder for Christians. I think that's to live faithfully, but the lines are going to be drawn more clearly as well. And let's take positive, like, you know, for um, whether, anyways, I'll stop there. But I think there's positive signs if you look in certain places. There's discouraging signs when you look at negative places. I think that there's a lot to be thoughtful about. And um, what we need is we talk about this all the time, discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. Uh, and you mentioned Paul in the standing in the shadow of the scaffold. In Second Peter, Peter is uh, writing his letter. And he says, uh, you know, our Lord Jesus has told me that I will not be here for much longer. You know, this I've told you this, but I'm committed to using my very last breath to make sure that when I'm gone, you remember everything that you should, you remember mm -hmm. everything I've taught you. And that's a pretty awesome way to go out. Amen to that. But as always, you know, we want to hear from you all, obviously you just heard our perspectives and there's a lot more we could say, but um, I think it's more interesting to in engage in this conversation with others who have different perspectives or, you know, different experiences that, you know, that we're not aware of or um, uh, know yet. So um, you can always email us uh, at the Will and Rob show uh, at ministry state.org. DM us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at RD Hassler. Will's at Stockdale. Will make sure to check out ministry state.org. We have speaking of discipleship, we've got Bible studies um, for people who work on Capitol Hill and in government. Um, we'd love for you to be part of those and make sure to subscribe and share this podcast with your family and friends. And with that, we'll see you guys again next week. Bye.